The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. It's recess time, recess in the House, recess in the Senate, and some of the assignments got done before recess. Others might wait until afterwards, but we're embarking on the traditional month off for the state legislature. And suddenly, uh, things are a lot more quiet on Beacon Hill this summer. But before the chambers emptied out on July 31st, or really in the wee hours of August 1st, lawmakers uh, went through a final flurry of summer legislating since they're probably out until after Labor Day. And here to catch us up on everything that happened on, not even this week, but on the one day of July 31st, are Katie Lannon, Colin Young, Chris Lasinski, and Matt Murphy. Hi, folks. Howdy. Hi, Sam. Heading into the 31st of July, everyone had their priorities in mind. Some made it to the finish line, others uh, not so much. But first things first, the day kicked off with the governor signing uh, the 31-day late state budget. This allowed him to send a couple of amendments back to the branches, which he said were time-sensitive and needed same-day action. So as far as wish lists for the 31st, that led his. Um, Matt, he had a couple of those time-sensitive amendments. Did he get what he wanted by the end of the day? He sure did. And we should start by pointing out that he sent back just seven amendments, which is a very small number. But three of those got done immediately. I think I might have even said uh, somewhere that uh, there was no chance that the legislature would take any of his vetoes or amendments up uh, before they went on recess. And I was very wrong because uh, the governor proposed changes to uh, the sales tax holiday coming up. He proposed changes to uh, an offshore wind pricing provision. And he had a uh, amendment relative to the release of some tourism funding uh, that got done that same day by both the House and Senate who were uh, meeting for their final final time. All right. So Matt, on the sales tax holiday amendment, are we going to be able to go out to a nice fancy restaurant like the new Emery down there on uh, Beacon Street and not pay meals tax? No. And from what we hear, uh, the Emery is pretty expensive. So your tax is probably going to be pretty expensive if you (laughs) go out the weekend of August 17th and 18th. Uh, What happened here was this was uh, another fix that was required to the uh, grand bargain law that they passed last summer. And for the first time ever, when they made the sales tax holiday weekend uh, an annual occurrence that didn't need legislative approval every year, they included the meals tax for the first time. And what happened was when the Department of Revenue notified restaurant owners that uh, the meals tax would be included in this year's holiday, but alcohol tax would not, uh, the restaurants uh, raised the red flag basically and said, hey, our our computer systems can't separate between uh, what we charge for food and applying the tax to food and the alcohol. We basically just slapped the six and a quarter Uh, meals tax plus any local taxes onto the total bill. So uh, the governor, from what I'm told by the administration, came to legislative leaders, uh, was uh, interested and inclined to include the alcohol tax in the sales tax holiday. So you would have been able to eat, uh, you know, tax free. 
but there was no consensus among legislative leaders, so they went the other way, and they excluded the meals taxes. And this was uh, basically just fine with the restaurants because they weren't really um, too worried about having this kind of holiday, especially on a weekend where they say they're very busy anyway. Uh, in the past, they've pushed for meals tax weeks, uh, meals tax holiday weeks, uh, maybe in March when things are slow. But in the middle of the summer, they feel like business is doing just fine. And wasn't there something with their point of sale systems that might have made this difficult yeah, to carry Yeah, exactly. Out? Unlike yeah. retailers who uh, are used to ringing up some things that are taxable, some things that are not, uh, the point of sale systems, when they're doing the checks uh, for your for your meal don't have the ability to separate out those alcoholic drinks. Uh, so they can't just apply tax to some items you buy and not to others. And the governor also looked ahead to the middle of August uh, and an RFP due date for um, offshore wind. And uh, what happened with the uh, price cap there? Yeah, the bids for the second round of offshore wind contracts are due August 9th. And the legislature had proposed to uh, lift the cap, uh, which required any of these bids to beat the price that Vineyard Wind offered in the state's first procurement. But there were a, a number of provisions in there about how uh, the new prices would be calculated and compared uh, to the Vineyard Wind price. It was very complex. And the governor said that he was very concerned that this would require them to cancel this whole procurement. Uh, if he, they were to offer the clarity that was needed uh, and give time for the potential bidders to adjust uh, their bids to the state. So uh, basically, they just did a flat a lift of the cap until January 2021. So for this solicitation that's currently ongoing, plus any future ones, because we know they've authorized, I think uh, it was uh, Colin might remember, but I think another 1,600 megawatts of wind power. That's right. And that could be coming up at any time. Uh, so uh, up until January 2021, uh, there will be uh, no price cap on these wind procurements. But uh, people still think that uh, prices should come in pretty low. It was just that the vineyard wind price came in much, much lower than anyone ever expected. All right. So a couple of days before the governor signed the budget, on Monday, uh, the state got some good revenue news, closing out fiscal 19 uh, strong. Uh, and only a fraction off of the revised estimate for the next fiscal year, uh, 2020. Um, so, Katie, uh, as a result, perhaps, or uh, in tangent with that, there were no no spending vetoes whatsoever from the governor, which uh, no one up here, including the speaker, could remember the last time that happened. That's right. It's it's kind of a, a rare feat, um, you know, within the, the all the other budgets the governor has signed in his uh, in his first term or now into his second He's cut some years hundreds of millions of of spending through his veto power, um, mostly dealing with earmarks. And of course, we always see the legislature uh, work to restore almost all that spending, um, get those uh, those kind of projects that they tout in their districts. You know, those local things like park improvements or, or studies that that are meaningful to them. But this year, uh, we found out. Um, after the governor signed the budget, I, I asked him what he had vetoed, assuming it'd be quite the quite the list. And he, he told us that he hadn't vetoed anything. Uh, he found the budget to be balanced. And I think you're right, Sam, in, in large part, that had a lot to do with the fact that there's just a lot of money this year. And, <laughs> you know, the, the conferees revised their uh, revenue projections upward by by six hundred million dollars and that that gave a lot of room to to increase spending really throughout state government there are are agencies that are touting you know getting 
getting more than they expected or asked for in this process. It's a, it's a far cry from a, a couple years ago when we were seeing the opposite happen, the revenue getting marked down in, in conference and some tough decisions being made. Right, 9C cuts and, and so forth. Yeah, it's been a while since we've seen the governor use his uh, unilateral authority to, to make spending cuts, those 9C cuts. And I think um, a, a lot of people are hoping to, to see it stay a while. Um, the only real criticism we heard of the the lack of, of vetoes, and there were a couple language vetoes, some studies and requirements that were vetoed, sure. um, but no no spending. And the only real group we heard uh, knocking that in any way was the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance. Earlier this month, Moody's credit rating agency, and we talked about this on the uh, podcast, was uh, concerned that the legislature was taking so long to produce a budget and, and uh, what did they say? Governance weakness. That was it. Thank you, Caitlin. They said it, it represented some governance weakness. Um, they were uh, pretty happy with the state of affairs uh, with this new budget. Yeah, a pretty rosy view from from Moody's, which said the new uh, this year's budget is is credit positive, and they pointed to things like the significant uh, bump up in uh, in education spending, the thing that has been referred to by some people on Beacon Hill as kind of a, a down payment towards uh, the the still long-awaited education funding reform legislation. And and Moody's also pointed to pretty big deposit plans for the uh, the stabilization fund, the, the rainy day fund, um, which is on track to receive $476 million through this budget. And they also pointed to, interestingly, um, the decision to drop the Senate's planned uh, UMass tuition freeze, which also got uh, some positive reviews over at the UMass Board of Trustees meeting today, where I was earlier. Right. Um, and, of course, the students, you know, who are going to be paying 2.5% more next year, maybe a little less happy about the, the bill. But the from the UMass perspective, it means there won't be cuts that there otherwise would be. Sure. Uh, quickly, any, anything else of interest come out of that meeting this morning? The, the big thing is um, the, the tuition rates for, for next year. And, you know, like a lot of agencies in, in state government and across state government, people are kind of keeping an eye towards uh, the aging of the state's population, which means fewer college students, and uh, the, the possibility of a recession somewhere around the horizon and what that'll mean for state revenues. Katie used the R word there, and I think it just reminded me of, uh, Sam, you mentioned the fact that we revenues don't have to grow very much, and uh, no, the R word being recession. Um, and while everything looks so rosy at the moment, uh, the state Rose is flush is another with R word. another <laughs> R word, uh, flush with cash. What was it? $1.1 billion over um, a benchmark for fiscal 19. They upped the revenue estimate in the FY20 budget by $600 million. The governor seems fine with it. He's not vetoing any spending. Uh, and then, uh, and you look at it, less than 1% growth needed just to hit the revenue mark for this, this, the next 12 months. So you would think that you would have, the state would have no problem uh, hitting that mark and be on the road to another surplus. But when we asked Charlie Baker, we got a typically Baker-esque, wonkish answer uh, <laughs> that uh, went through all the different tax categories and why there's concern on the horizon, uh, why there is possibility that corporate taxes and uh, offshore uh, repatriation from the federal tax reform that might not happen next year. So I think there is some degree of preparation going on for the next 
our recession. All right. Uh, good point, Matt. And uh, this podcast is brought to you by the letter R, including uh, racing and Colin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pardon that transition. Um, the uh, governor closed out July uh, pretty satisfied with um, the uh, final formal for the summer. As far as legislative priorities, things got a little bit sloppier uh, over in, in the House and Senate. Um, and for the second year in a row, there was a bit of a hiccup with reauthorizing racing, horse racing, and uh, simulcasting in Massachusetts. Um, and indeed, it was a brief period of illegality for the racing industry overnight, Wednesday into Thursday. Colin, these bills every year seem to be getting tied up in conversations about the future of racing uh, in the base state. But is, is that the only reason why these bills just keep getting left undone at the end of the 31st? Well, Sam, I think part of it also is that I don't know that I would necessarily call this a priority of the legislature, more uh, a necessity. Uh, <laughs> the the authority for racing and simulcasting is done on a year-by-year -year basis. So every year that they extend it only one year means that they have to come back a year later and do it again. And this isn't an issue that comes up throughout the year. It's usually more like, oh, that runs out at the end of the month time to start thinking about doing that again. Huh. Um, so I think that's part of why uh, these bills tend to uh, come down to the wire as they have the last two years. Uh, and you're right, the other part of it is that uh, racing and simulcast wagering are going through a lot of changes here in Massachusetts. There's no more thoroughbred racing in Massachusetts after Suffolk Downs closed its doors. So now we're down to the uh, standard bred harness uh, horse races down at Plain Ridge Park. Uh, and, and with the simulcast uh, wagering, you know, that exists in a, a landscape that's changing with uh, resort casinos now in Massachusetts, the possibility um, of sports betting uh, maybe next year, it sounds like, uh, and a whole host of you know, online gaming, a whole host of, of, of other um, um, gaming and gambling options out there. So there's been some talk about trying to fold racing and simulcasting uh, into something that makes sense for the, the sort of gaming sector as a whole. Mm. And uh, what were the differences here between the House and Senate on this routine bill? Um, it was, well, <laughs> uh, at the end, it really just came down to a date to extend racing and simulcasting to um, uh, whether it was going to be December or March, they ultimately settled on January 15th, 2020. What, uh, what difference would that date make? Uh, just when they would have to come back and do this again. So it, it, part of it is that they, like I said, want to get to uh, thinking about other issues and some of these other topics I mentioned uh, in the betting world. Um, so if you have the extension go for a shorter period of time, it, it might force your hand to get to those other issues a little bit sooner. Um, but earlier in the week, uh, after the House had, had proposed basically a um, straight extension of the authority until March uh, and asked the Gaming Commission to uh, submit recommendations for handling simulcasting after that, the Senate responded uh, with a bill that would have changed how gaming revenues uh, flowed into the Racehorse Development Fund, which is the, the account that funds the winner's purses at horse races in Massachusetts, uh, as well as benefits, uh, you know, hay farmers, horse breeders, and sort of ancillary um, industries there. 
Uh, so the Senate's proposal would have made some uh, fairly substantial changes to how that gaming revenue flows into that account. Uh, and Horseman rejected that outright. The House didn't uh, seem to care for it either. Speaker DeLeo said he wanted just a straight extension. Uh, and with that deadline looming uh, midnight Wednesday into Thursday, uh, it was just after 12 o'clock that uh, the legislature finally sent an extension to the governor uh, to extend those through January. And he signed it in the morning. And were the sulky races all set at Plain Ridge? All set. It was, about, it was yeah. about nine and a half hours. For a 4 p.m. post time? It was about nine and a half hours that racing and simulcasting were illegal. Last year it was about 36, so a shorter period this year. Uh, but you're right, there were races down at Plain Ridge Park on Thursday. They went off uh, without any issue after the governor signed that bill. Sure. And you mentioned the late hour that things got to on, on Wednesday night or Thursday morning. And uh, props to you and Chris Lasinski for sticking around in, into those early morning uh, <laughs> uh, hours down on the House and Senate floors. So Serving the working press since 1894. Serving the working press, indeed. But we started this podcast situated in the morning hours of Wednesday in the governor's office as he signed the budget. Now as we fast forward to, uh, let's say, just before dinner time. The Speaker of the House said he was waiting anxiously for a compromise between the House and Senate on a distracted driving bill that's been in the works. How long has it been in conference, Chris? Been in conference since June 19th, so about six weeks, maybe five and a half. Sure. And then um, getting closer to dinner time, or actually it was about 7.45, the Senate president um, said it should be done tonight. And indeed, um, you learned that there was an agreement but it didn't get done. Uh, Why did it fall apart, Chris? Well, that is something that Matt and I spent most of Thursday trying to unravel. Uh, All parties agreed that uh, Senate President Karen Spilka was correct when she told us around 7.30, 7.45 that there was an agreement in principle on this legislation to require hands-free use of all electronic devices while driving. But at some point between then and the end of the night, it seems like things broke down. The agreement in principle appears not to have translated into to an agreement on the actual language that was written, printed out, and uh, what ended up happening was the House conferees, uh, you know, this is a six-member conference committee negotiating the final bill, all three House members signed off on it, left it in the House clerk's office expecting the three Senate members to sign off on it, and those signatures never came from the Senate, even Thursday morning, because they had some concerns, kind of left a little bit vague, a little bit unspecified about how the draft was written and the enforceability of the language in there. Do we know if the representatives expected the senators to sign this jacket when they dropped it off? Or uh, One senator who's a proponent of uh, distracted driving bill said that it was uh, perhaps more of a public relations press tactic, I think he said. Yeah, that that Senator Mark Montigny used some uh, colorful language that I will not repeat for our family-friendly podcast here (laughs) to describe his thoughts on the the explanation. I thought we were going to get to try out our uh, bleeper for the first time oh gee we can put the recess we can put the recess bell over it let's try that uh yeah so so senator mark montigny said he thought that was a bullshit explanation by uh chairman bill strauss from the house side um you know it, it as to your original question if this this really was the reason i i i suppose the answer is it depends on who you ask and who you believe 
two House members, Strauss and uh, uh, his vice chair, uh, Rep. Joe Wagner, both told me they thought they were done on Wednesday night. They had a draft bill printed out inside a jacket, left it in the House clerk's office at 11.30 p.m., expecting the Senate members to come down and sign it so that that could make its way out to the floors for the, for the next step. But that never happened. And, and the Senate members only told us that they had concerns with the exact way that a bill like this should be written because uh, obviously it's something that would carry a criminal charge and would be the subject of many, many charges and court cases and that they wanted to be extra careful that how the bill is written uh, is enforceable. Sure, and conference committees operate in private. So this is a little bit more of a glimpse than we might otherwise usually get into their inner workings, but uh, we still don't really know what the outstanding issue might be. No, we don't. We know what the differences are that they were tasked with negotiating in the first place. Uh, We know what was in that draft bill that the House members signed off on. It looked like a blend of the two bills um, following the House's lead on requiring demographic data collection of traffic stops only that end in citations rather than all stops as the Senate pushed, but following the Senate's language on making third and subsequent offenses surchargeable for insurance purposes. That being said, we know that that's what the House signed off on. We don't know one way or another if what the House signed off on is actually what they agreed to with the Senate in those private negotiations. Sure. And uh, racial profiling had been an issue with this bill, right? For a long time, yeah. Um, It's something that that proponents say is is a really crucial step to ensure that the state is tracking to make sure that uh, this new uh, a far broader ban on using devices behind the wheel isn't used in a prejudicial way or uh, disproportionately affecting um, non-white drivers, for instance. Um, and uh, we do know that that difference on exactly what data should be collected was kind of the main sticking point between the House and the Senate when they started this. Matt? Yeah, I think, you know, when I talked to uh, Senator Boncori and I asked him about the language that Chris actually got a chance to look at uh, down in the clerk's office because the the proposed conference report, at least the one that the House conference signed off on, was still sitting there. I asked him about it and he said, I, I don't really know what they turned in because there was no agreement, at least on the wording. I got a lot of words matter uh, from Senator Boncori that uh, the agreement in principle was there. They knew what direction they were headed, but he was very concerned about litigation. And I think that uh, the racial profiling piece has always kind of been sticking out uh, as the obvious a point of difference in these bills. Uh, it's kind of held this bill up for years on Beacon Hill. There was a lot of assumption there, but I think it's a little murkier now, especially after uh, Senator Boncori uh, brought up the 2010 ban on texting while driving, and he said that the Senate wants to be very careful when they're writing this because they know it could be subject to litigation, and they don't want to write, he said, another bill that's unenforceable like that that 2010 law. And we know that Hmm. law enforcement police had a lot of problems with the texting law. And there are provisions in this new bill about hands-free driving uh, that would require you to basically put your cell phone down. You could only touch it for a single tap or swipe to activate hands-free. I mean, that could be another point that they're uh, trying to get the language just precise enough uh, so that it stands up in court and police can actually enforce this ban. Well, formal sessions are permitted during August, although not likely. Most likely, we're coming back into formals after Labor Day. Is distracted driving legislation dead until then? 
unfortunately, that's another thing that we simply don't really know. There's differing senses on that, uh, even within the conference committee itself. Senator Dean Tran, one of two Republicans on that six-member group, said that he looks forward to taking this up after Labor Day, whereas uh, you know Rep Strauss, the House chairman, told me that this doesn't even require a formal session to begin with once they finish their work. So he expects that if, uh, if they could reach an agreement in time and if leadership could sign off on it, they could just do it in an informal session anytime this August. Uh, what actually happens, we will be waiting to find out. Yeah, Colin? In the underlying bills here that are being um, ironed out by the conference committee, passed both branches almost unanimously. I think the Senate's bill passed unanimously with all 40 senators voting in favor. And in the House, I want to say it was only two members who, who voted in opposition to the bill. So there's there's fairly widespread support for the underlying idea here. Sure. And if it's a good deal, it should sail right through. Yeah, just I, I'm just not sure Senator Mark Montigny, after working decades uh, to try and get this done, he may have some more colorful language if he's not allowed to take a final vote on this bill. <laughs> well said. Uh, quickly, Chris and Colin, a couple of other odds and ends uh, just to wrap up from Wednesday's uh, sessions. Um, in the House, Chris, a children's health bill um, sort of an easy lift, uh, one of those pieces of consensus legislation that gets brought to the floor and a couple of uh, comments and, and, and passes through. Yeah, uh, something that the, the speaker had just unveiled Monday, got it to the floor on Wednesday, passed unanimously. This is kind of a wide-ranging bill, and it's the first in a what he says will be a series of legislation aimed at uh, key issues facing children. Uh, a couple of the key components are it allows foster children, uh, it codifies uh, a current practice that allows foster children to stay on mass health until they turn 26, kind of a public mirror of uh, children being able to stay on their parents' private insurance until they're 26. Um, it calls for uh, a study of the foster system, calls for insurers to ensure that their provider directories online are up to date and don't carry any outdated information about doctors who aren't even practicing anymore. Uh, so really kind of a, a multi-pronged approach in this. And as you said, it sailed through the house basically with no problem whatsoever. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for uh, this Friday. We had some good takeout this Friday, though, some uh, off-the-record empanadas uh, from our <laughs> a secret kitchen source. Yeah, some black market empanadas and a, a highly recommended seafood chowder that uh, Sam sent me to Zoe for, which was delicious. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some Chinese food up in the office waiting for us. Well, I was going to say, um, all in all, our, uh, our takeout today, uh, significantly more affordable than the Chinese takeout that was skewered uh, in uh, one of the papers this week. The people have to eat, Sam. The they people have to have eat. To eat. <laughs> well said, Matt. And on that note, <laughs> happy Friday. See you next week. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.